0: What is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. On today's episode, we have a very, very special guest, Joe Foster, the co-founder of Reebok. On today's show, we talked about how he was able to build and scale Reebok to a multi-billion dollar internationally known brand. And it's fascinating because he's 85 years old. He was born in 1935. And To listen to him with his wisdom on business and just life overall, I left the interview not only so much smarter, but happy because to hear his story, to hear what he's working on now was just incredible. And if you don't already know, his new book, Shoemaker, is out now. So make sure you get a copy. I will make sure to link it down below. You can actually order signed copies, so make sure you check that out. But before we get into the podcast, please share this episode with a friend. This was one of the most incredible interviews that I've ever done, and I'm sure you're going to love it as well. So please let me know what you think. Shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Casey. And remember, leave a rating and review on iTunes. It means the absolute world. And with that being said, enjoy today's podcast with the founder of Reebok, Joe Foster. What is going on everyone casey adams here welcome back to the rise of the young podcast on today's episode we have a very very special guest joe foster the co-founder of reebok thanks so much for coming on joe
1: hello yes um <clears throat> it's a long time since now we did co-found uh, <laughs> reebok but uh, of course uh writing the book has brought back a lot of memories absolutely and, uh, <laughs> and it's been good to do
0: Totally. So Joe, first of all, I, I, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time and you have quite the, the story and the journey, but I, I'd love to just touch on the book first. I know that we talked about it before we jumped onto the podcast, your new book, shoemaker, what inspired you to write this book? Cause I know it, it just got published and everyone's loving it. I see you guys posting on your Instagram stories all day. What inspired you to write this book?
1: Well, many people have said, Joe, why don't you write your story? Um, and I, uh, I sort of retired from active uh, participation in, in Reebok in 1990. So it's a long time and it's about 30 years ago. But I started writing this seven years ago. And the reason was that uh, so many people said, why, why don't you write your book? It's, it's a good story. And uh, <clears throat> there are so many, she would say, stories out. Globally, with Wikipedia, which are incorrect, you know, <laughs> they, they do things. They say, "Well, you changed the name of the existing Foster company." No, we didn't. <laughs> and so, I, I think what the book will do, hopefully, what it will do, and it seems to be doing it. So, well, it puts the story straight. It, it takes us way, way back, back to 1895, yeah. when my grandfather made a pair of shoes for himself. Wow.
0: So let's talk about that. Your grandfather, 1895, he started uh, fostering sons. Can you talk to me about your grandfather and what inspired him to initially make some of the first athletic shoes?
1: Well, my, my grandfather, he, he was a member of the local athletic club. He, he liked running. He wasn't a big guy. He wasn't a good runner. <laughs> yeah. he's probably sort of midfield in uh, in in his distance whatever that was and i think it was about probably half mile miles something like that but uh he his grandfather called sam he had a cobbler he, well he was a cobbler in nottingham and nottingham is sort of central the uh, uk and he used to go down and visit his grand, grandfather who was repairing shoes and amongst them were, were cricket boots. Now cricket boots had spikes in the bottom and Joe must have said to Sam, uh, why have they got uh, spikes in the bottom of these boots around there? And he probably said, well it gives them grip <laughs> when they're on the grass and they're bowling or they're batting. Oh, right. Now taking this knowledge back with him, uh, Joe himself decided he preferred to be a cobbler than to work in his father's business, which was confectionery. So he, he set his little cobbler's business up in his, uh, his his father's bedroom, up in his bedroom, his father's house, and he, he started. He made his own pair of shoes, his own running shoes, um, and this was sort of in those days, wherever he got his knowledge from, whether he'd seen other spike running shoes or it was just from these cricket boots. But he certainly pioneered the, the shoes. He and he, he was so anxious to get his first pair done that he's. And he hand sawed these. He hand sawed the clump. The clump is wow. where you put the spikes at the front. And he hand sawed one on, and he nailed the other one on. Wow. So off he went. And of course, he didn't win this race, but he he moved up the uh, the order very much. In fact, I think on one event he he even got second, which sort wow. of ir- irritated his his uh, his clubmates, his teammates, and then they. So well whether they sort of bullied him or whether whether they just politely asked him that uh, could we have a pair of those shoes joe yeah but that's when he started and uh he was very good by 1904 right uh, we're talking 1895 six years later yeah he had a real good business and uh he yet he I, I don't really gave shoes to alfred shrub alf shrub was a a, a sort of a an internationally well-known runner who brought three world records in wow. one event.
0: Wow. With his shoes. I did
1: before, <laughs> wearing Joe's shoes. Wow. And he he went on from there because he learned very soon that uh, you've got to have influencers. And if you give shoes to the right people for him, it, it would influence other people to, to buy them and wear them. Yeah. Um, of course, we had a World War One intervened in his business when he started to – um rip her army boots for a while yeah. but back in, then, then his his belly pop was uh, the 1920s in 1920 itself he uh, he had an arrangement with the Olympics and he supplied the Olympics at Antwerp all the teams he supplied all the wow. teams so way back then. yeah <laughs> and then then we go on to 1924 where he had uh, two people were, well, he had lots of gold medals, but two in particular, one was Eric Liddell The other one was Harold Abrahams. And in 1928, he had Lord Burley also won. Now, those three names, I don't know if you know them, but uh, they were the athletes that the film Chariots of Fire was about. Okay. So he actually made the shoes for the guys, they got going. And those guys are immortalized now in in that film, Chariots of Fire. That is amazing.
0: (laughs) That is quite the story
1: there. It, It is in itself. And to think that. See, in those days, yes, they influenced athletes to wear your shoes. Yeah. But today we've moved forward where you need the same influences, but now because of well, because of technology, yeah. everything has moved on, and these influences now are influencing the uh, sports product to become street. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> Once they become street. They become fashion.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you know, we're talking a hundred years ago when your grandfather started this this first sneaker, and then you and your brother when you guys started Reebok to starting it and continuing the heritage to becoming the number one sneaker brand in the world. I, I, you have such a journey that you've been through. But when you guys started, like, what was the goal when you started Reebok? Because I'm sure you weren't saying, "Hey, I want." of the U.S. to wear my shoes and to be a multi-billion dollar global brand? Or was that the goal? I'd I'd love to just hear some of the early inspiration of when you guys started Reebok.
1: Why wouldn't that be a dream when you go? (laughs) (laughs) However, it it doesn't work like that, does it really? Because (laughs) you you can see into the future only um, if you've got a crystal ball. And even then, you're very lucky lucky if you can come (laughs) out with an answer. So everything is done step by step. Our our problem was for Jeff and myself, we we joined the uh, foster company early on. I had 12 months only in the company before we went to national service. National service, it's compulsory in those days. And there's two years. In 1953, both Jeff and myself went into uh, the forces. We came out in 1955, much wiser much sort of having yeah. the freedom you know no mother no father you've got to look after yourself you'd learn an awful lot yeah. and we came out and, we came, and we're horrified to find a failing company they were just going nowhere they were still making the same shoes that grandfather had made in the 20s and 30s and they hadn't moved on they had no marketing plans they, they, they had no salesmen they had no design teams they just continue to make the same shoes. And, and we were horrified. And it, try as we, we did, and we did, we tried hard. Come on, we've got to move this company along. We, Adidas, look at them. Jeff Jeff was in Germany. And he had seen Adidas and Pluma, and, and he would yeah. seen how they were progressing. Ah, where were we going? Nowhere. So out of necessity, uh, we said, we, we've got to change. My father said, look, this company is going to be yours when I'm gone. Oh, well, look, look, Dad. We, number one, we don't want you to go, but number two is this company will be dead long before you are, uh, and that's the truth. So yeah. we couldn't we couldn't make the move though. But really, the the problem was they didn't really get on with each other. A bit like Addy Dassler and Rudy Dassler. Rudy yep. left and set up oh, Puma, yep. and that, that allowed both companies to grow, but they just fought, they feuded, and nothing happened. So in 1958 we did we young undestructible we could do anything yeah like the company set up our own company to make uh make our name in sports shoes, and we started off as mercury sports Footwear. and so okay along the journey, we found we couldn't use the name mercury because you have to register it yeah so, yeah otherwise anybody can jump in there and start making shoes yep. called mercury Uh, And that in itself is a fun story. It's in the book. Uh, And we ended up uh, with with Reebok. Why Reebok? Well, in 1943, think about it. It's a long time ago. (laughs) Indeed. During World War II, um, I won a a running event, 80-yard sprint. and, And the prize was a dictionary, a Webster's Dictionary. And Webster's Dictionary is American Dictionary. Yep and we had to we had to find a new name and i'm leafing through this i and i i like the, the the letter r i thought that's good strong um to start your, your name with and leafing through i came across the word reebok r-w-e-b-o-k a small south african gazelle well hmm, we're a running company uh, yeah. sounds pretty good that and it fits in <laughs> quite nicely so and and although an agent had said, look, you, you've, got to, you've got to give us at least half a dozen names because when you put them through the register process, you, you'll find a lot of them are registered. But this one came out. Yeah. However, they, they put it into the, in part two of the register. Reason why they put it in part two? He said, well, if anybody comes to me and says I, I'm making running shoes out of Reebok skin, I can't stop that. So for twenty years we were in part two, but after twenty years, yeah, he came back to us and said, "We've moved you into part one because Reebok now is a shoe; it's not an animal." Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love that. What were some of the lessons that you've learned that you'd want to pass on to entrepreneurs today through your through your journey with Reebok? Because you guys have accomplished, you guys accomplished so much, and continue to do so but there's so many lessons that I'm sure you've learned along your journey that I'm just so fascinated by because I I grew up playing hockey. I would wear the Reebok skates, and then I was wearing the zigzags back in the day. And you guys have just such a monumental brand, but what are some of the lessons that you'd want to give to an entrepreneur today through your not only 85 years of life, but through building Reebok?
1: Well, I think you've got to start with that. In in those early days, athletics was a, a very small sort of business in the UK. The big business was football or soccer, yeah. if you want to call it that way. That was a big business. That that was the one that influenced a lot of people. It was a spectator sport, and so many spectators, uh, plus so many people used to participate. Athletics, no, a bit more refined, not as much. But in America, every university, every college had coach, and coach was God. He, he, you, 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 yep. you went to college because you were a good athlete, not because you were that academic. Yeah, you know, that the athlete, the sports side was very important. In 1968, I, I went across my first NSGA show in Chicago, cold, really cold. But uh, that was my first one. Met a lot of people, and they said, Where do we get your shoes from? And I said, England, <laughs> New England, no, not New England. England? Oh, well, hmm, so. They would have bought my product, and that would have been okay. But unfortunately, uh, I needed a distributor. I needed to get the shoes in. It was 1979, and that followed uh, the design. We had a design of the Aztec. The Aztec got five stars in Runner's World. Wow! Runner's World was driving that market, and Runner's World drove it from a small business to a massive business, the the Runner's Market. When you got five stars. That was the key. So, if you say, "What is your lesson for anybody?" Keep focused. Keep trying. Don't give up. You've got, but you've got to seize the opportunity when it comes. And actually, looking around, you've got to recognize that there's an opportunity there. Uh, if you don't keep your, <clears throat> if you don't recognize anything, you won't make anything. But you've got to recognize it. And so, spotting the opportunity <clears throat> is probably the most important thing. And then you've got to. Keep with it. Plus, you've got to have passion. You've really got a passion. Add passion with it. When we picked up the name Reebok and took this to the registrar with all the others, and I said, look, this is the one I want. Uh-huh. I because we've got to be in love with it. Yeah, It's got to be what we live every day for. And so these things work for you. So, And it's your luck. There's a lot of luck there. The running market being at the, at the time when yeah. we were the – it. so <clears throat> recognize your luck and i mean today is so much in technology and i yep. think that's uh, there are so many opportunities now at technology and now we have covid 19
0: yeah
1: uh, it's it's forcing that technology it's probably probably moved on 10 years totally to, would have done if we had no covid and it's going to go more yeah it, and it's brilliant so uh that's what I say to people, entrepreneurs. We're looking around. Keep looking. Yeah. Uh, keep focused.
0: Absolutely. And when it comes to your passion for Reebok, when when you when you guys were starting to really scale globally, what were some of the I would say strategies you used back then that led to a worldwide global brand? Because not many businesses not only get to that level, but I'm sure you've had some critical moments when it comes to going from a, a smaller brand to being recognized globally. And what would you say that moment was?
1: The obvious moment was aerobics. That was it. And, and, and the person there was Angel Martinez. And he, he was the guy, he, uh, he was a tech rep at the time in Los Angeles. Uh, we were doing nice to good business with the running business. But uh, his wife, Frankie, she was going to these aerobic uh, classes with her with her girlfriends. And then she was coming back, she was brilliant, I love this, great stuff. So he thought, hmm, there must be something in this. And uh, he joined in one of the classes. Uh, and what he found is the instructor uh, was wearing sort of uh, tennis shoes or running shoes. And uh, half of the class were doing the same. The other half had no shoes at all. So light bulb moment, he had it, why don't we produce... A nice soft glove-like shoe for for this this aerobics exercise, <clears throat> which was to music, and so he went over to see Paul Fireman, who was operating the the USA distribution, and Paul, Paul said, "No, no, no. We, you know, but a few girls dancing around in your shoes. We'll, we've got a good business with this uh, with the running shoes. We're doing very nicely. We don't need that." But Arnold was a bit more persistent, and he went round the back knocked on the door of the production people and sort of talked them into into them producing for him 200 pairs, which he distributed in Los Angeles, all those uh, uh, aerobic people. <clears throat> and this was picked up because wow. this was the first time women had had a shoe, a sports shoe specifically wow. for them. <clears throat> Reebok were doing nicely, but Reebok were not known like Adidas, like Nike. They were known to be male. Sweaty, wow! Well, this was for girls. We beautiful glove leather, nice. Yeah. Okay, glove leather. <clears throat> anywhere else in the world, would have been out of business. <laughs> but yeah. Down there in California, the girls loved it so much they didn't <laughs> care that those those first shoes just fell apart yeah. because glove leather doesn't really stand up to uh, put, wearing it as, as a shoe. Oh well, that that became how can we say we we got over that one the different tanners different leathers and still had the same nice soft feel Uh, but it just went street the and you had sigoni weaver yeah uh, uh wearing them in aliens and uh who was the other girl in the emmys um I've got GNC. <laughs> I've got Linda Evans here. Yeah, yeah. Not so many. All of a sudden, the, the stars started wearing the shoes. So we didn't have much of a strategy. And what was happening is that all of a sudden, Regamont got pulled along, became the woman's shoe. And, and, and as such, all women wanted, love this shoe. Yeah. We, we then moved into tennis as well. <clears throat> and uh, Wendell Niles, who was... Uh, <clears throat> who was well-known in, in California. He, he, he knew everybody in, in Hollywood. Yeah. And he got us into a pro-celebrity event in Monte Carlo, okay. which was the uh, Princess Grace Foundation. Wow. And then that, and you know, who doesn't like to go to Monte Carlo? So <laughs> uh, all these people were invited, uh, John Forsyth, Roger Moore, uh, Sean Connery. There were so many yeah. The stars used to come along, so the whole thing became clips. We, we became part of Hollywood. Yeah, And yeah. So there was no real strategy.
0: Yeah, yeah. It is the way <laughs> events unraveled.
1: It did. It just unraveled. It 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 ran the company. Yeah, uh, we went from uh, from nine million dollars revenue to thirty million dollars revenue to ninety million dollars revenue to $300 million to $900 million in successive years. So wow. this is how the company grew so quickly and became number one. They overtook I just overtook Nike and at that moment of time, sort of the second half of the eighties, that Reebok were number one.
0: Yeah, wow, that is in, that's incredible. When you guys went through that growth phase of going from 9 million to 900 million to a billion dollar company, what was your main day-to-day and how are you you know, managing people? Because you guys did that so flawlessly based on the journey and how you guys were able to become so successful. But where was your time being spent personally? And how are you able to um, deal with that level of
1: growth? Well, you, you can imagine when you get a company that size, this is not Joel Foster. This is <laughs> a team yes. a lot of people. And there's a lot of people with Paul Feynman, Arnold Martin. There's all these people. And uh, you, you have to think that team people work on this. I mean, the biggest thing when, when you think that sort of growth is we'd, we don't become the problem of financing it. That was, that was done with. Uh, even though that was a hard job to do, you can imagine how do you finance that sort of growth? It's, yeah. it's, but how do you get the product? You know, which factory can suddenly turn on that sort of uh, volume? Yeah, and again, we we just got to run our luck here because at that time Nike just ran into a wall. They, all companies seem to just stutter and yeah. lose something, and Nike lost quite a lot. They had to pull out of a couple of factories, and and so Reebok managed to do that. So, I mean, that's 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 a sort of timing you can't. Organized. yeah totally that, that, that just has to be your luck and we had a lot of luck with that for me by that by now i i would i've really gone into international and i am traveling the globe probably three times a year building the international distribution wow. so i was putting on different countries uh wherever they were around the world and i i traveled an awful lot wow. i, I spent quite a bit of time in america of course because it was important yeah but what was really important is that we had Paul Feynman concentrated on America. Yep. And the minute you take your eye off the ball is the minute you lose it. So we, we really needed uh, Paul to, to keep the focus. His focus was to build up the USA market. Yep. And the rest was easy for me because the USA market itself is such an influence for the rest of the world. Totally. They, they all look to America. And so It made made my job very easy. Uh, I had to go around there just selecting people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: When it comes to um, working with Paul, how did you guys meet? What was the story there?
1: Well, that was back in 1979. Um, We had just got the Aztec uh, for 1978. We actually produced that for the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and it did really well. We got some really good gold medals out of that. And so in 1979, NSGA, uh, that's in February 1979, we had, the, <clears throat> we had the gold range as part of, sent part of our uh, offering. And uh, Paul, at Kmart as well, came along too. So sort I of said, look, we, we'd like to have your shoes. Uh, but also Paul came along. <clears throat> so I had these people. And what, what I did then is, of course, we went on from the show. And I, I came back to the USA in May of 1979, um, went to see Kmart, he was willing to give me an order for 25,000 pairs. Uh, our factory in Bolton couldn't handle that. that was, yeah. Not yet. But I, I knew that that would be the situation. Once we started uh, selling shoes in USA, we would need to uh, find more production. I'd already found out with Barter. Barter would make shoes for me. And I was already talking to people um, who represented the Far East production in, in South Korea. So we had that all fixed because also came out the guy said, yeah, we're 25,000 per, but we need them cheaper. We need a better <laughs> price. And so, okay. So I left there and went back, went, went across to Boston to meet up with Paul Fireman again. And Paul, he, he, he really wanted it, but he said, Joe, we really need that five stars that Runners World could give us. And I said, don't worry, Paul. I'm sure we're going to get five stars. <laughs> we spent well i had to go back again and it was august when the issue came out the runner's world issue came out and i phoned paul midday for me about seven o'clock in the morning for paul and i I don't think i got him out of bed but (laughs) (laughs) he he was a bit dozy yeah i said and i said paul paul go down to the kiosk and uh, get one of these runners world the first as soon as you can it was about an hour later when he came back and he called back a joke he said aztec Brilliant! Five stars. <laughs> <So> I, <clears throat> that was it. I mean, it was like choo, yeah. Somebody just, the golden key. We had it. He said, but not only that, your other two shoes. They also got five stars. Wow! And one was a spike, and the other one's racing shoe. So we had three five stars. So there you go. There's the key. Wow! And, and and that's what really started Paul off.
0: That is amazing. And 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 speaking of that, I believe Paul was CEO for twenty six years. Is that correct? something like that something yes. like that when it comes to leadership and building that level of a company like what would you say makes a great leader and how do you identify a great leader in your own organization
1: i think a great leader has to has to have a team and he, he has to get his team and they all have to have ownership they all got to feel that oh, the same like, that okay you feel.
0: okay like yeah. ownership in the company
1: yeah you've got to feel you've got to have the passion yeah you know you, You're not just working for a job. This is a passion. Yeah, you've all got the same goal, and a a good leader will build that team, and he'll listen to that team because you can't do everything yourself. In fact, you know, totally take one step back. I was once told that uh, if you're the boss, you should be doing nothing. The other people should be doing it, and you should be free to listen, to learn, and to help. Yep. Um, You know, you tell people, look, don't bring me problems, bring me answers. And if there's if we've got two answers and we need to decide, then we'll get together and we'll decide. And so, you know, your man at the top has to listen, has to be part of the team. Yep. And it, it, and it's something that is working, working together. That That's the only way you can do it.
0: I love that. Um, speaking on something you brought up earlier, just competition in business when it comes to, you know, you guys are going head and end with Nike and Adidas and all these massive brands. What was your experience with competition and how do you stay ahead of competition in your business?
1: Well, whilst we were there, I, I think this is one of the things that we, we probably didn't take enough care of because the business was running us yeah. and we were growing that fast that uh, we didn't even think about uh, Nike or Adidas. It was how do we how do we produce this many shoes? Yeah. <laughs> how can we keep on doing it? How can we keep... Uh, and it, it was pulling us along. So I think staying ahead, I think that's one of the problems really why Reebok is not as, as visible today because <clears throat> I think they, we, we forgot at that point that we, we needed to move on. And <clears throat> you know, the company is well-respected. It has good business. But uh, when you compare it now to Nike and Adidas, it's just, it's quite small. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's still a big business. It's totally. still in the billions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah. clears throat> Got but, it. That makes sense. Yeah. When it comes to, I know, um, like, for example, doing these different influencer celebrity brand endorsements with Alan Iverson. Um, I know that was a very prominent <clears throat> moment for Reebok as a brand. I actually have a, a basketball signed by Allen Iverson, but I, I wanted to bring that up. Like what was the importance of doing um like high-level deals with someone like Allen Iverson and how how impactful was that for the business?
1: Well, I think I think you just need to look at this. We also had Shaq O'Neal. Yep. And yeah, uh, you know, what happens is these are the influencers. These are the people who not only influence Others to perform in 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 the shoes. They also spill over onto the street. They create the fashion. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Alan Iverson is still there, and so is Shaq O'Neal.
0: Totally. Uh,
1: but now with Reebok and now being part of Adidas, there's the sort of a selectivity on which uh, which sport, which category. You know, who you're going to, where you can do. And of course, the latest signing is uh, is Wonder Woman Gal Gadot. Yep. I mean, that's the latest one. Uh, and that is, I think that is reinforcing the position that Reebok took with women, that uh, they, uh, Ariana Grande, yep. uh, again, you know, there's another, uh, and um, uh, um, Gigi Hadid, uh, they, this, this is enforcing the, the female side yep. that uh, Reebok really grew with. But they, they are the people that, uh, that influence the street. Totally. and that's where, that's where the volume is and and that's when um you are sports driven companies but you're fashion companies yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and adidas and nike and reebok are fashion companies now
0: When when do you think that change took place because I, me as someone i'm 20 years old and i totally agree with you where it's like you see the hottest nike's or the hottest reeboks or whatever it is adidas <laughs> and it's a fashion statement at the end of the day right like when was that change, and when did you really realize that as a as not only people that are making shoes, but now fashion items that people love and wear?
1: <clears throat> well when uh, when my grandfather started to use his influences, at that point, performance was performance, and it didn't spill over onto the street. It needed it, it was a progression. And I think it started I first saw it with uh, Adidas when Adidas were supplying so many football teams in the UK, soccer teams in the UK. Yeah. And they, they then started to do the shirts. So there were replica shirts. And yep. all the kids started wearing the replica shirts of their favorite team. Yep. And, that, and that is a massive business. But if you, if you expand upon that, on that idea that people see these sports uh, stars and, and they want to wear the same, the same clothes and then it comes to, to shoes and we now have so many means of seeing the product yeah. uh, at one time you only saw the product if you if you went to a football stadium uh, or, or, yeah. or, or in a, a retail store now I mean everything Amazon you just look at yeah. that now everything now let that's moved that along yep. and so we look at television now we, it's so many ways now of seeing a product so it's so much different, but you've got to see it on people and, and see those people wearing it, and, and that's where the uh, um, where the endorsement comes in and, and the yeah. influence. And we see now that most most well, such a lot of clothing that people wear now is sports driven. Yeah, even uh, even super brands that uh, the French super brands now. Yeah. Uh, sports driven. Yeah, you've still got Louis Vuitton, you've still got the the names DR, but they they're producing something that looks like a sports shoe. Yep. So it's been going there. Yeah, we uh we started off in the late nineteen fifties and there's been, been been many recessions around the world yep. for different various reasons. But we never had one. And the sports industry has never had a recession. It's because it's always been driving forward.
0: Totally. People
1: People have more time. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got other things that uh, yeah. robotics. You know, you got AI. You've got all, all. Well, you know, AI, these things are taking over and giving you more time. And yep. as people get more time, they they want to participate more. They want to do more things that uh, are sports driven.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I have two more questions before we wrap up, Joe. And one is just. You know, you're talking a lot about just other topics as well, AI and Amazon and e-commerce, and you're, you're such a sharp thinker. Like, w- looking into the future, like, where do you spend your time now and what are you excited about right now during this point in your life?
1: Well, I spend my time, I used to spend my time traveling. Because <laughs> although, although when I retired, I said, Look, this is it. I'm so tired of being at 50, at 30,000 feet and traveling all the time. Yeah. Uh, but I, I travel a lot on my own. And, uh, and, and I've, I've said since retiring that don't give me a ticket. I need two. I did, yeah. I, I'm not traveling on my own anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I do travel. Well, me and my wife, we travel through Europe a lot. We drive into Europe because I have so many friends there. Yeah. You know, France, Germany, Italy. Uh, Switzerland, and we, we Greece, we spend time with these people. It's nice to sit down, relax, have a drink, remember the good old days. <laughs>
0: totally, <laughs> so that's what I do
1: with my time. I love and, it. I love
0: it. And, um, last question before we wrap up here. One of them is, what does success mean to you, and what do you want the legacy of Reebok to be? Uh,
1: well, the legacy of Reebok, I think that uh, we uh, I'd I love to see Reebok being accepted. I think it is already accepted as a major brand Absolutely. and a major player. Yeah, uh, not only in performance, but also in fashion and street. So for, for the brand, I think that legacy is there, and that's what i love to see. The other thing for me is I'd like people to enjoy reading my book. Absolutely. And, 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 and enjoy the journey that I had and the adventure some sad, a lot brilliant and something you, you 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 can't relive because it's so unique.
0: Absolutely. And for, for everyone listening today, your new book shoemaker, where is the best place that people can buy this book and read it? Because I know I'm excited to read it and I've been seeing you guys post all about it on social media and, and I'm super excited to get my hands on it, but where's the best place that someone can buy your book so that they can read it?
1: Well, it will very soon be available in major sport, in major uh, bookshops and Amazon. But if they want a signed copy, yes, because of COVID, uh, they can only get that from me. And we we've, we've had hundreds of uh, requests for that, and we've yep. been, been to do it. And that is uh, on our website, which is jwfosterheritage.com. Uh, and it, so, if anybody wants a signed copy, and they can get. Get it from uh, from the website.
0: Totally. Well, otherwise,
1: it is it, it's it's out now. I think it's out on audio. Yep. It's certainly out in Europe and other places, but um, I think it's just been a bit of a delay taking USA and, and Canada.
0: Totally. Well, Joe, I will make sure to link that all down below. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was such a pleasure having you on.
1: Well, it's been fun. It really has, and I thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Great. Awesome. You got it. Excellent. That was wonderful.
0: Thank you so much.